Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site or on whatever method you are accessing this now. There is a subscription button. Just click on that little sucker, and you will be subscribing to Creating a Family. Today's show will be on Should You Adopt a Child with Special Needs? I'm Dawn Davenport, the Director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both adoption and infertility. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com, or you could talk with your oncologist or your reproductive endocrinologist as well, and they will have information about uh, this resource. If you enjoy this show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. You can do it by the simplest way is just to go to uh, iTunes and type in Creating a Family. Uh, Our page will pop up, and there is a rating button there, and we would really very much appreciate it. We're the uh, number one um, adoption show and actually the number one infertility show uh, on iTunes, and we would like to continue to... uh, Uh, grow and reach more people and that your uh, ratings will actually help. I'd like to say that this show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Nightlight Christian Adoption with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and adoption programs throughout the world, as well as a domestic infant program and their Snowflakes Embryo Donation Embryo Adoption Program. We also have Children's Connections with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. As you just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who do support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you are looking for an adoption agency or an adoption therapist or any form of adoption service provider, please make your first stop the Creating a Family databases, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, uh, programs, type of programs, years in operation, just a whole coast of criteria, including humanitarian aid, that we think are important when choosing. By using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's Creating Family Show, we will be talking about special needs adoptions and if this is an option you should consider. Most international adoptions are now special needs adoptions, as are adoptions from U.S. foster care. Are you up to adopting a child with special needs? 
Our guests today to talk about this are Martha Osborne. She is the founder of the Rainbow Kids, the largest special need advocacy site with photo listings of over 1,700 children needing families. We also have Dr. Lisa Nalvin. She is a developmental pediatrician specializing in care for children with developmental delays. She is director of the Developmental Pediatric and the Adoption Screening and Evaluation Program at the, oh golly, I should have asked you how to pronounce this. Uh, Lisa, is it uh, Carriker? Carriker. It's Carriker. Carriker Center for Child Development, Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Dr. Nalvin also serves on the Executive Committee for the Council on Foster Care Adoption and Kinship Care for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Welcome Martha Osborne and Dr. Lisa Nalvin to Creating a Family. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Dawn. Uh, I wanted to start this show with an email that uh, we received uh, from Bethany, uh, and uh, it was just, I think it will set the tone. Uh, She just sent it yesterday. I want to start, uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Uh, She says, three years ago, after four horrible years of infertility treatment, we first started thinking about adoption. I have already... I had already been listening to the Creating a Family show, but had skipped the adoption ones. I started listening to those, and one of the first ones I heard was about special needs adoptions. I never in a million years would have even thought of that, but after hearing the show, it got me to thinking. I had my husband listen to it on his commute, and he called me up and said it made perfect sense and was the first thing in two years that had made any sense. We read and listened to everything you had on special needs adoptions, and through you we found the Rainbow Kids website. To make a not-so-long story short, we are now the parents of an absolutely perfect two-year-old girl and are going back for our boy. I can't thank you and Creating a Family enough and thank Martha Osborne for what she does. I just thought that that was a good way to start this show of all shows. So thank you, Martha, uh, for what you do, and thank you, Lisa, for what you do for helping make families. Um, I wanted to start with the the term special needs. To me, it is such a – I know it's the term we use, but it is such a weird, ambiguous, broad term. Lisa, what does it really mean? Well, I think it depends on who's using it. And in terms of how we think about children as pediatricians, um, it can be very broad in the sense of – looking at children who are not developing in what we would consider a typical fashion. But that's not just development in terms of walking and talking, but we have special health care needs. So maybe a child who has a chronic medical illness, um, uh, chronic asthma even would be considered special needs. So it's something where a child may require additional care, attention, intervention, whether it's medical or educational or therapeutic, um, and it can range from mild to severe. And so I think that's why there's some confusion. It's a very broad term going across different disciplines and has a range of severity. Yeah, I think that's, and that I do think that is, and, and, the, and I also think people have a preconceived idea what it means. Martha, what are the more common special needs that you are seeing uh, uh, in the children that are on um, Rainbow Kids? Well, only a portion of the children who are available to families end up on Rainbow Kids. Um, they are, the 1,706, I think, was the final total when I looked this morning. 
um, that are on there cover a wide range. Uh, they can be as young as I have a little boy listed right now who's just about to turn one year old. I'm all the way up to about 14 years of age. And age can be, I, I would say that age is the most common special need. You get a child who's five or six years old. Um, that is considered special needs. A child who is part of a sibling group, that would be the most common. The absolute number one most common special needs, the, which we consider special needs to be whatever reason the child is a, is, has not found their family, is being born male. And that is very shocking to people when they hear it. But three out of four families who set out to adopt request a female child. And so it is a lot of work to convince people that these beautiful little boys are available. Boys can be of only two years old and have the most minor special need. Um, they, are, um, not, they are looked over. They are not adopted. Families are willing to wait years to adopt a girl. So I would say being born male is the number one special need for any child to be available through international adoption. Um, next, we see a lot of cleft lip, cleft palate, uh, those are called cranial facial differences. Um, that has been common for the last 10 to 15 years. However, so many families have adopted children with that specific special need that more, most of those children are placed within, with agencies place those with their current clients because families are aware that this just isn't the, the special, you know, as special as, as it was before. It, it can there's a lot of medical intervention that can be done for these children. Next would be blood disorders, hepatitis B being the most common one, but we do have kids on Rainbow Kids with hemophilia, which also has a broad spectrum of um, how complicated it may be, some needing almost no treatment and others needing regular blood transfusions. So we do see hepatitis B carrier kids who oftentimes live a very normal life span. Uh, we also see HIV-positive kids who many families are unaware that these children with proper medical um, intervention can live uh, a normal lifespan as well now. Um, HIV is not what it used to be when, when good medical care. But let me, I have let me to interrupt here just, just a second, yeah. Martha. Let me interrupt just a second to say we will be doing a show this fall on um, adopting and raising a child with HIV. Uh, oh, please and let me know when you put that on. I would love to promote it. That would be a wonderful oh, our, thing to do Our lineup of guests is phenomenal. I am really excited <sighs> about that show. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head when it's going to be for our audience uh, if you are interested in knowing about our shows in advance and the ability to send in questions, uh, sign up for our newsletter uh, at our website, top left side of any page on our website, or at the bottom of every blog, uh, creatingafamily.org. Go ahead. I just wanted to say that because I am really okay. excited about that show. Go ahead, I am now. super excited to hear about it, so please keep me informed about that okay. one. Okay, just a, a couple, a few more special needs that I, I want to mention that are very commonly listed on Rainbow Kids uh, would be spina bifida, which I would say of every special need that families have a preconceived notion about the outcome of a child um, long term, it would be spina bifida. Uh, a lot of families don't realize that it's it's it is also a broad spectrum of how serious that that diagnosis is, and then many families take the medical information they get 
they go to a doctor, such as the one we have on today, and they get a good review of the medical information pre-adoption. They have not committed to the child. And they can get a basic um, idea of the complications that that might accompany this child after adoption. Uh, we're running a story on Rainbow Kids right now. We just put it up yesterday about a family who adopted a child with spina bifida. Um, and it gives a realistic outcome. The, this mm-hmm. little girl is walking now and doing well, but yes, she does need um, much more interventions and therapies than a child without spina bifida. But we have other kids who, who are doing fantastic. So you have to look at the child before you look at the special need. And the final yeah. thing that I want to mention that we, we commonly see is children who are post-operative meaning that they've already had surgery to correct something like a heart defect, but they never lose the label. Once a child is diagnosed as having some kind of medical issue, they stay labeled as if that medical issue um, is still prevalent. So a child who has a heart issue is going to always be labeled that. You have to read through the medical information and find out that the child has received surgery to correct the issue, then time has passed and they can give a good um, idea of how the child is doing. And most of our heart kids are doing fantastic because they do receive interventions from doctors outside of their own countries. These are doctors that travel to do the surgeries. So that would be some of the most common, but it's a wide range. We cover over 50 different special needs in our special needs area uh, that helps families understand uh, kids and, and what the labels mean. Let me use this moment. We uh, uh, there's so many moments that I would like to say, but uh, uh, put in a plug for your the special needs section on the RainbowKids.com site. Um, listeners to this show are well aware of it because I mention it almost any time the word special need is mentioned. I mention that as a resource. I link to it uh, uh, on my blog and then our site, uh, creating a family links to it all over the place. It is a wonderful resource if you are considering. Um, if you are considering adopting a child with special needs, you absolutely need to make this uh, where you are going to find out information about specific needs. There are, uh, is it what, 60, 50 some odd special needs that are listed? It's 50 something, and we're really open about linking to other sites too. So within every special need, we put special needs stories that families written, and Mm -hmm. we also link to outside specialists and websites where families can self-educate, get all the information that they need to make informed choices. You know, here's a funny thing. We were actually in the process here at Creating a Family of considering a a resource similar, not exactly, but very similar to that. And then Mm -hmm. it was right, it was a number of years ago, and it was, and then I actually spoke with you, and you indicated that you were doing that. So I waited, and we saw, uh, we waited, and we saw, we told the board that we needed to hold up. We saw what you had, and I said, guys, (laughs) this would be dumb for us. She's done it. This Thank is a you. great resource. and I love uh, it. And I send people your way all the time too, Dawn. So I really appreciate the support. And we are right on the cusp of launching a new special needs area. We're doing that this fall. And each special right. need is going to include videos too. So oh, that families can idea. really see, families can really see children who have come home. And that is only possible through um, the thousands and thousands of families who have adopted children who were once listed on Rainbow Kids. Um, I've put the word out that we need families to come forward and share their stories, and we've just gotten received an outpouring from um, the adoption community of people who want to encourage others to adopt. 
and see the child first before the special needs. I do now, Lisa, that. does the, the special needs vary by country? Or if you were interested, say, in adopting from Africa, are there uh, special needs that are more prevalent in Africa versus, say, China versus, say, Colombia? Well, I think you need to think again more globally about the changing face of special needs. A large discussion we've been having through our committees is that when we we used to say special needs because all these children come from a background of risk. That is the reason they are available for adoption or in foster care. And we know that early adverse experience can have an impact on overall health and development. And there is a large studies to the CDC and other things that are showing the ramifications of early experience. Um, and so, in that regard, um, the children' special needs, in a certain sense, are universal in terms of the impact of early adverse experience. Um, mm-hmm. You know, living in poverty, separation from parents, living in neglect, things like that. Um, and so, that would be a common thread. Then things that we used to that used to be the big special needs, and I think Martha is probably very familiar with this, is that you know it used to be if a child's eye was crossed in another country, that was special needs. Something we don't consider a big deal here, you know, absolutely a, a significant birthmark. Now, granted, a crossed eye or a birthmark can be associated with much larger syndromes, but the vast majority of those children really have this isolated, more cosmetic issue that had them labeled as special needs. And then, you know, the family would bring home this child and find out there's really nothing else going on. And so it was a win-win. We are now moving much more into what Martha has described, where the special needs are more complex. But I think the important point is that they exist in a range. There's some children with cardiac disease who have had repairs that still have significant issues, even children in the United States with their biologic families. And there are other children who have minor cardiac issues that after repair are really not a big deal. And so you really, um, as Martha said, really look at the individual child, get their histories reviewed, find out how significant the medical or developmental issue is. Is it part of a syndrome? Is it an isolated thing that, even though it's real, is totally manageable? And so I think that's an important point, thinking about special needs. So then when you look at countries... Um, part of it, you know, it has to do with who are the children available for adoption, so we may not be seeing the whole picture when you're saying, you know, what's more prevalent in Africa mm-hmm. versus, let's say, China or Colombia. Mm-hmm. There's some children who may never make it to the point of being available for adoption because of whatever it is, okay? In um, other words, you're saying that the country itself will not consider this child adoptable and will never even refer this child for adoption. Is that Potentially, and we know in China a lot of the children are having cleft repairs, or but they would be stable with that. But the cardiac repairs, that in another country a child would not even survive right. without the cardiac repairs. So we yeah. see from China a lot of children with cardiac issues. Does that mean they don't exist in the other countries? No, but we may just not be aware of those children. There's certain things by um, kind of genetic loading um, that would be more significant. Like, let's say, in Africa, you might be more likely to see sickle cell than you would in China. Um, So part of it has to do with their prior experience. Some of it just has to do with the children who are available. And some of it has to do with truly the genetic makeup of the population, where um, clefts are more common in Asian. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's where we're seeing it. But we also, most of our adoptions were coming from China, too. Right. So I think there's certain things that are just common to being a child anywhere, whether you're born into a birth family or, um, you know, or end up in an orphanage and come to a family. I mean, um, Down syndrome occurs at a certain rate internationally. Um, there's some things that have to do with prior experience. And um, and some is, you know, some is just about being a kid. And we know that certain disorders exist no matter where you're born and where you're raised. You know, this would be a good time to interject that uh, uh, foster care adoption, the children coming from U.S. foster care, many of them are also classified for some of the very same reasons that, that you have mentioned and also for different reasons um, as having special needs. Um, and uh, Lisa, as, as part of that committee for the American Academy of Pediatrics, what, uh, in other words, the correctable uh, medical issues are usually have been taken care of uh, for children uh, coming from foster care? Not necessarily. Say. If you look at the work by um, actually who's the current um, head of our executive committee, Moira Salaji, and just some of the national studies, when we talk, when I do presentations and talk about children in foster care and children who've come from, let's say, orphanages abroad, if you look at the rates of medical issues and developmental issues, they are very similar. Yeah, certainly developmental. That's, a, that's something no, but that medical we say too. a lot here. And now, it may not be cardiac because if a child is born in the U.S. with a cardiac mm-hmm. condition, it's picked up in the newborn nursery. If they're well, Usually cleft lip and cleft la- palate have been repaired right. here in the U.S. But in terms mm-hmm. of medical issues overall, Children in foster care have extremely high rates of medical problems, be it the blood disorders, be it chronic asthma, chronic ear infections, malnutrition. So, I mean, granted, there is good foster care where the children thrive and do beautifully, but the the national data overall is um, quite disappointing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I was I was really thinking in terms of uh, some of the uh, cardiac and cleft lip, cleft palate, uh, things such as that. That uh, here in the U.S., but but the what one of the things that we do try to point out is that there is I think a misperception that children uh, from abroad will not have some of the developmental issues because they often are uh, uh, younger, although not significantly younger, than the uh, children from foster care. And the children of the world over come into governmental care for the same reasons generally, which is abuse and neglect. Um, and that, of course, leaves a lasting impact uh, developmentally, uh, regardless of where the child is, is coming from. Uh, I think we've, we've got a question from Carolyn, but I think we have, uh, she was trying to understand the distinction between minor special needs and more severe, but I think we've more or less addressed that. Many special needs come on uh, on a spectrum. And from what I'm hearing, both Lisa and Martha, what you're saying is that uh, for the most part, uh, the severity of the special needs of the children who are currently waiting is greater than it was, say, 10 years ago, five years ago. With the exception, interesting what you were saying, Martha, is for males. Uh, uh, Lisa, are you also seeing, well, you might not be in the position so much of seeing that, but that uh, 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 little boys, very young little boys, uh, with relatively minor special needs are are still waiting for families. Um, are you still are, are you in the position to see that, Lisa? No, because I only get to see the ones who come. 
Right, if I do exactly. the post-arrival evaluations. <laughs> right. Uh, well, but Martha is in the position to see that, and uh, I think that is a startling... Um, uh, it is a startling reality that people do not want to face. I mean, I can, I can guarantee that anyone could log into Rainbow Kids today um, and find a three, four, five-year-old little boy with a very minor special need that's been waiting, waiting for eight months to a year. I mean, they just wait. That's all they do. It's just mm-hmm. very, very sad, and um, something we we've been discussing for years and years with uh, the many adoption agencies who um, use our service to advocate for their waiting children. They just it's the most common question I get: How can we help place these boys? And mm-hmm. I said, I don't have an answer. We just, I, but I do know that we need to keep talking about it. We need to keep openly telling parents. You know, think about this, please. Well, I, I think yeah. as um, sorry, this Lisa again, just commenting on that. I think from as a developmental pediatrician, we as a whole, the literature and clinical experience show that developmental disabilities are more common in males than females, uh, and we don't know if some of it is truly genetic. Like we have disorders that are X-linked that you only see in males. We know that um, some of the more externalizing behaviors, things like ADHD, aggression. Conduct disorder, typically people think about more with males, although that's not to say that females don't have it, but sometimes it comes out a little differently. So I think I don't know if potential future parents are concerned about those potential trajectories in terms of the group data rather than looking at the individual child. But I think what a discussion I have with all parents who are doing who are in the pre-adoption phase kind of who have not had an experience of raising a child or caring for children or aren't somehow working with kids and through their um, professional lives, is that 15 to 20 percent of all children have some type of developmental or behavioral issue. That's all comers. And what was that statistic again? 15 to 20 percent of all children. So, you know, people think, you know, they look around and they don't realize that a lot of kids they see who seem totally fine may have stuff that they and their families are dealing with. So we know milder things are more common, things like ADHD or learning disability, maybe 8%. It depends, you know, what study you're reading, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, anxiety is now extremely common in young children, and we see it, again, you know, they say up to 10%, 15% by teenage years. Again, not necessarily devastating anxiety, but anxiety that rec- comes to the attention of professionals. The things that are much more severe are much less common. So cerebral palsy is less than 1%. Cognitive impairment, now called intellectual disability, 1% to 2%. And that's what I, when we talk about just being a kid. So no matter how a child comes to your family, there's always the fact that there may be something and that most things are manageable. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, very good point, Lisa. Yeah, we actually I was just uh, we have a section on our site for adoption research and we've just added uh two studies and I uh was quickly trying to see if I could recognize which one one of the two that are top listed on our page which is adoptioncreatingafamily.org/adoption/research um was analyzing uh, a whole host of comparing all sorts of things. We, we usually try to only put really the larger studies um, uh, looking uh, where the end value is actually quite large, where there's a lot of people that they're being looked at. And this one of them was a meta-analysis. 
But they actually did not find, which I thought was interesting, um, that uh, 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 that boys, uh, adolescent boys, showed more uh, problems than uh, adopted adolescent boys showed more problems than girls. Um, It was also fairly optimistic comparing uh, adopted versus non-adopted, and it uh, showed that domestic adoptees uh, usually struggled more than international adoptees. Interestingly enough, but. Um, so if anybody is interested in that and is thinking about a boy, uh, go to uh, that, and, and we've uh, uh, linked to the uh, original study where we're able to otherwise be summarized. I wanted to take a moment and talk about some of the uh, um, the the more common uh, special needs that you've mentioned. We've been very clear that they come on a spectrum. Uh, Let me just pause a moment to say that you are listening to Creating a Family, and today we're talking about should you adopt a child with special needs. We are, uh, the uh, Creating a Family's mission is to provide unbiased, accurate education and support for those touched by adoption or infertility, and we have extensive resources on special needs adoption on our website. You can find them by going to creatingafamily.org, hovering over the word adoption, click on resource, and click on special needs. Martha had said that the of all the special needs that people have uh, preconceived notions about that perhaps are not correct is spina bifida, uh, and I thought that was interesting. And I, I certainly think that there are definitely uh, preconceived ideas about those children. So, uh, Lisa, can you talk to us a bit about the spectrum that is spina bifida? We think in terms, I think generally, of children uh, being uh, incontinent for life and usually uh, not able to walk. So that's, I think, the preconceived. I'm not trying to make generalizations about what other people think, but I no, think that's definitely a, a preconceived notion. Yeah, I think so too. All right. So, so Lisa, can you talk to us about the spectrum? What is spina bifida? Just briefly, that we, we will do perhaps a as, as I'm listening to Martha speak, it, it occurs to me that perhaps a show on specifically two certain of these uh, uh, special needs might be helpful. But uh, but briefly, what is it and, what, and 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 how impacted can children be? What is the spectrum that we're speaking of here? Okay, well, spina bifida is a disorder in the development of the spinal cord and the surrounding bone and tissue. And we don't see it as much in the United States anymore because folate supplementation during pregnancy seems to be preventive. So it's much, much less in here to the point where the the number of specialty clinics um, has decreased um, but still exists because we do have still many individuals with it. But in the U.S., it's become much less of a problem. In other countries, for nutritional reasons, genetic reasons, um, we still see more children being born with spina bifida. And again, um, I believe Asians are more susceptible. Um, what And again, highlighting Martha's point, there's a huge spectrum. The disability that the child may experience has to do with how big the lesion is and where it's located. So if the abnormality in the, what it has to do is with kind of the closure of the spinal cord and the casing around it and protecting the nerves and having them connect all the way down, if the the lesion in the spinal cord is high up, let's say belly button, okay? Mm -hmm. Everything from that point down is going to be affected. If the lesion is much lower, let's say closer to the tailbone, then you may not have difficulty with incontinence 
and you may and you you should be able to walk depending on the level of the lesion. So when you hear spina bifida, you need to again look more closely at um how where is it located? Um, there are some that are called spina bifida occulta where you don't even see it on the on the surface of the skin. It's hidden. I had one child where I picked it up after the child came here, and what we noticed was is that although the child was walking and doing things, I was doing an exam and the reflexes weren't right, and there were very subtle findings, and nobody knew. And then another child may be born with something that looks kind of like the the tissue from the inside being on the outside because nothing's closed up. And then that child's going to require immediate surgery and then may have more, has the potential of more significant issues depending on which nerves are involved. So you have to really know what type of spina bifida is it and where is it located on the spine. And this information is available um, to families uh, uh, when they are trying to make their decision. Um, I do want to at some uh, our next uh, we will talk about the process because I think there's also a misconception about that. But before we do that, let me uh, I wanted to just finish up with what Martha was talking about the more common ones uh, and get a feel for the the spectrum that it, that it often is. In blood disorders, as I said, we're going to be doing a show on HIV, so we won't talk about that. Um, but about uh, hepatitis B, which, uh, Martha, did I hear you correctly that that's probably the largest blood order that you see uh, for special needs on your site? We see a growing number of HIV kids, especially our, um, a number of children coming from Columbia, but hepatitis B um, is still just as scary to families as it's always been, especially and um, if you have a child who's seven or eight and has hepatitis B and maybe one other little thing going on, that's it. The, the child just cannot find a family. So, yes, hepatitis B is one of the most prevalent issues that we see. Then, Lisa, can you walk us through uh, what we mean, uh, what is hepatitis B, and but most importantly, how does it impact a child and a family um, from the concern of transmission and other things such as that? Well, hepatitis B is a virus, and although the the markers, the way you diagnose it is through viral markers in the blood, it is really a um, disease of the liver, and it affects the liver. Um, and so... When a child has hepatitis B, we worry about how is their liver functioning, not so much as a child, but long-term. Mm-hmm. And so hepatitis B can be, um, the transmission is through body fluids. So typically a child may get it transmitted through the, um, the pregnancy and exposure to blood during birth. That's one way. So it's maternal fetal. The other play, way we're you know, in the U.S. we screen, but blood transfusions of a child had been hospitalized and was sick. Mm-hmm. And the other way is like dirty needles. Those are the primary ways of doing it or potentially sexual abuse. Um, so, but it's not by touching somebody. So, um, so there has to be a mixing of blood products. Now, in the United States, so the child can be very healthy appearing. And except for the hepatitis B test in the blood being positive, the liver is fine. Child looks great. So on the flip side, 
for an adoptive family, the reality is is that if there are other children in the home, they should already be vaccinated for hepatitis B because it's a preventable disease. And we recommend that all families who are adopting, the adults who were not part who were too old to have been vaccinated as children, yeah. we always mm-hmm. recommend that they get vaccinated before they travel. So regardless of the adoption, that's it is regardless now, of the adoption. And you know, if you're a healthcare worker, you you've already been vaccinated. We were all vaccinated back in the eighties it started. So in that regard, for the family, they can be vaccinated, develop immunity so that they are protected. Okay. From, you know, okay. if there's any concern, like, you know, if you touch your kid's cut and it goes into an open wound, whatever. So the real issue becomes is this child going to have hepatitis B? Some people resolve it. They cure themselves, and they've had it, and they're fine. Other people go on to be chronic carriers that Martha referred to. And then some in their carrier state are more infectious than others if there's that contact with the body secretions, blood products. But in terms of everyday contact, it's not an issue. The issue How about is, long-term life expectancy? Well, this is the thing. Yeah. Depending on your viral load and how your body manages the virus, right, mm-hmm. you can lead a long and healthy life. There are some medications we monitor to make sure the liver inflammation doesn't increase so that, you know, because then the liver doesn't work properly. But either with or without medications, people live healthy lives. The problem is, is when you get into, um, it, just like with HIV, you know, the schools, everybody's supposed to be using universal precautions. If a kid has a cut or vomits or does anything, you're supposed to use gloves. So in theory, nobody needs to know that this child has hepatitis B. There are some practical limitations. The real issue becomes was when they're teenagers and adults and they're getting into intimate relationships, if they want to donate blood, how to explain this without making the child a social outcast. And how, mm-hmm. how much do you keep secret and how much do you disclose? Because of kind of the ignorances and the prejudices, we tend to say do not disclose to, like, the school well, and, and all that. Right, but not to your uh, – when your uh, your intimate partners are certainly to giving blood, you would disclose there. You just simply right. wouldn't try to give blood. I find ultimately the child will need to know, just like with any other illness. But I have had families adopt a child with hepatitis B where the entire extended family – actually, it was a scare for hepatitis B. It turned out it was negative. The entire extended family would not touch the child. Hmm. So some of that had had passed, uh, some of that uh, prejudice. Um, And even if the child were positive, you're not going to get it by touching her. Mm Mm-hmm. Touching her, kissing her, anything. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's blood to blood. It's blood to blood. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it, it's, it is a health issue. You need to be aware and you need to be thoughtful. But you can have a long and healthy life, as can the people around you. How many people with, uh, how many children, I should say, with hep- hepatitis B go on to develop uh, uh, significant liver issues later in life? Um. I cannot tell you offhand, but if you give me a moment, I, the hepatitis, <laughs> actually the hepatitis um, B coalition has tr- tr- is a really nice website, as does the CDC. Um, the real issue is is that you have to look at the individual. 
what's their viral load, what is their liver function, because that's actually, if you're saying who's more likely to go on to have problems, that's what you need to look at. It's the individual child. Again, the group data in that regard is not helpful. It's just scary. And I think that that's an excellent point that Lisa is making right now. It's always about looking at the individual child, and families need to be aware that they can receive this medical information about the viral load levels pre-adoption. They can request extra information before making their choice to move forward with an adoption. So they, such a good point. It is important to know that every time we're talking in a broad term about a special need, it really does come down to every single individual child and where they fall on the spectrum of their diagnosis. And and Lisa's not thinking to, to give this advice because she's in, in the trenches every day, but she is the exact person families need to go to when they're trying to make an informed decision. They need to go to a clinic, to a doctor who specializes in evaluating the profiles of children um, coming from institutions and countries outside of the United States. Uh, let me add something that, that I see happen very frequently, too. You are considering a child that, that has a special need. You can ask your agency, and often the agencies will be volunteering this information, even if you don't ask, that another family has considered that child, has taken the child's information to an, uh, an adoption medical professional and gotten an, a, a report. And they may very well and usually are willing to share that report with you and so that you have additional information even before you go uh, to your own um, international adoption doctor. Um, there's uh, and this, your agency probably knows about uh, which families we're considering and what information they might have. This leads us into what I think of as another very large misperception about special needs adoptions. People are afraid that if they uh, sign up for the special needs program or indicate to their agency that they would be open to certain special needs, that they will all of a sudden get a referral, and their fear is that the referral will be for a child that is far uh, more involved than they are able to handle. Um, And they're often surprised when they understand that that's not how the special needs adoptions work. That's not how the process works. Martha, can you walk us through the, and it does vary by country, but I think we can make some, some fairly large generalizations that would apply to all countries with special needs. Well, Don, that you just shared that information is so important. I, I hadn't been thinking about sharing that, but you're absolutely correct that most families who are entering into the adoption of children with special needs, that is their number one fear, and oftentimes they don't voice it. So exactly. um, you, can't get, you can't get past an issue unless it's on the table. Um, families come in, as you said, and they are so afraid that they, if they open up and say, yes, we're, we're open to adopting a child with special need, that immediately uh, people are going to be rubbing their hands together going, okay, let's pawn off this kid to them. And that is incredibly the opposite of how it works. You In have fact, to, you have more choices with special needs adoption than you do on other adoptions. Absolutely. With a healthy child, you are often unable to um, say gender or, or, or indicate in any way, shape, or form exactly the type of child that would best fit into your family. And I want to emphasize that we're not talking about a shopping expedition here. We're talking about an agency worker who is a social worker working with a family to identify 
the type of child that will best fit into their family and situation. And the social worker's job is to help a family envision a child within their home, within their family structure, which can include other children of different ages and different abilities. So it's, it's almost like a counseling process of many months. A family's asked to explore the spe- through, um, an, through counseling and a number of special needs that are outlined what special needs are you open to adopting? And they're given a list and they're given a a lot of pre-adoption counseling about what these special needs include and what their family dynamic, how it might change with including a child with specific special needs. So the family has a long time of self-education and education through their agency to consider different types of medical diagnosis. And then they they submit a list to the agency of what they might be comfortable with, um, understanding that they if they're presented with a referral, which means a match of a child, they have time to decide and um, counsel with a doctor who has a good background with working with children with this special need or coming from institution, um, get that input and make an informed choice about would this child, because we want the child to be a good match. For them exactly. too. We want the child to thrive and be healthy in this family. Um, we do not want to just match any family with any child. We very, very much want it to work for the family and the child. So although a family may come on Rainbow Kids um, and see a child that they feel is a good match for them, it's not a shopping, it's not a shopping website. You, you have to have had a home study, which means an agency has evaluated um, what type of child would be good in your family, and you've gone through the counseling. Then if your agency and you agree that this child's file might be um, one that is good to look at, then the process begins. The family looks at the background of the child, because on Rainbow Kids we give very little information. It's a, so it's a little structural outline. A family needs to be qualified to adopt to see more information. So the family then can evaluate this child, get medical input on the child, and have time to discuss it. The, the child's profile is then put on hold. And that happens whether a child is on Rainbow Kids or is coming through the agency themselves. There's a period of time where that child is then not available to other families while an individual family makes a decision about whether to proceed with the adoption. And and, in and your agency addition, can, and your agency can, and will give you a, a period of time to gather more absolutely. information. And uh, uh, your agency will have uh, other families that, and so you're not, you will be a good agency will not push you to accept uh, a, a referral that you feel like is just more than you are capable of handling. Because as you say, that's not a good match. Uh, we want adoptions to succeed. Right. Yeah. Um, and no, no family should be pressured. If a family's being told <clears throat> you only have three days to decide, they need to start looking for another agency. That is just not appropriate right. behavior. What do you feel like is a reasonable? What's a reasonable? Um, because there's that tension. You don't want to have a child on hold, where another family who might be looking can't adopt them. So there's a there's a tension there between what's reasonable for the family, and what's reasonable for the child. There absolutely is. I can't define exactly where that line is. I've seen it the other direction, too, where a family has had a file for 30 days and mm-hmm. um, is, is the agency has to make the call and pull the file back because 
they have been interacting with the family and may get the idea that maybe it's just one parent um, and the other parent is not comfortable. And then that is no, not a good match at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, 30 days is too long um, unless we're talking about a sibling group uh, because we are, we are talking about a family who's already received all their pre-adoption counseling and the family's been through a full home study. So they know that they need to... Um, they need to be looking closely at the profile and not dragging their feet. But I would say two to three days is is much too short. A, I agree. A family, they, they need much longer than that to try on the idea and to educate themselves and and speak with a doctor about about the special name. So, yeah. Lisa, how quickly can you turn around with somebody, uh, you or other uh, 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 adoption medical professionals? How quickly uh, uh, can you turn around a uh, a, a review uh, and an analysis so you can help families understand that special need? Well, typically, you know, it it, it part depends on the file. Um, we usually, my office can do it usually in one to two days, unless you know there's you know we're out of town or there's a big conference and nobody's here. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the, the colleagues that I work with do it in under a week. So, you know, usually two days to five days has been my experience for most because for all the reasons that Martha was saying. But sometimes if I get a case where I'm looking at this particular medical issue and I'm not 100% sure of the ramifications or there's something specific in the medical reports that where I want to contact another specialist um, to make sure that we're getting we're interpreting the data correctly and the ramifications, I might need an extra day to track down that specialist who I can say, you know, this is my impression, is that in keeping with you, you know, because I'm not a surgeon, you know. And so sometimes you have to say, how significant do you think this repair is going to be? And so that could take a little longer. Also going back to Martha's point, um, you know, seeing it from the other side when a parent um, comes and says, da-da-da-da, review, da-da-da, special needs. We educate them. We talk about the range of possibilities, review the medical information, talk about how significant we think it may be. Um, and then, you know, the, the the question is, you know, doctor, what would you do if this were, if you were in this situation? Oh, no. And, you know, what the what I usually say is, you know, you have to dis- – having children comes with risk, no matter how they enter your family even if you are pregnant with the child, and there's no family history of anything, unremarkable pregnancy, there are no guarantees. Granted, most children are born healthy and, quote, normal. That's how we set our standards that we compare to. Unless your family has a history of a genetic disorder or you had a very complicated pregnancy, you may not think about the possibility of having a child with special needs. So... I think people, again, we have to say just like 15 to 20% of all children have something, having children comes with risk no matter how they come to you. And then you have to decide how much risk you can live with. And that's a very personal decision. It's not right or wrong. And it can be a very subjective line where you say, I can live with this, but I can't take that next step for that. Or there's too much uncertainty. Or there's not enough information. And a lot of times I say, this is the information you're going to get. You have to decide if you can take that leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And usually, because of the counseling process, the home study, and everything that's been done by the agencies before, 
majority of the time, I've had parents accept the referrals that have something. There are cases where they said, you know what, this is really quite complicated and, you know, this child obviously is profoundly impaired, has fetal alcohol syndrome, and honestly, we can't do that. We have another child. This is not something Mm -hmm. we can take on. And that's reasonable. But they thought Mm -hmm. it through. Right. You know, it's interesting. Dana Johnson, uh, Dr. Dana Johnson's been on the show a number of times, and on one of the shows, actually one of the earlier shows he was on, he uh, has he said, and I will be paraphrasing poorly, but he, uh, but basically, it, you know, people uh, go in afraid of the physical problems. He said, but mm-hmm. I've talked with thousands of families after the fact, and almost always they can handle the physical issues. It's the emotional mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. that are the ones that tend to really wear on them long term. Uh, and uh, and that's a and I thought that's a uh, I think it's such a good point, and and also. One of the harder points, because those those issues are often hard to determine. A child can look very healthy, and I'm putting in that in mm-hmm. air quotes, and yet have you know significant um, issues with attaching, significant issues with trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome and things such as that. So, Lisa, what are some of the uh, common risk factors that parents should consider? For the psychological issues that might that could develop from early trauma. Well, again, we we assume we've actually through the Academy of Pediatrics, in combination with the Dave um, Thomas Foundation, have, um, have published a trauma manual for pediatricians, which is available online, um, and it's at um, AAP doc org forward slash trauma guide and it's a it's uh it's also the hard copy is coming out next month i believe but it really goes through any child who's been in foster care or adopted you need to really consider that trauma or early adverse experience is part of their life until you prove otherwise now if a child at birth is placed with a family Mm-hmm. You may say, well, that's not, even though there's going to be adoption-related issues when they're older, you're mm-hmm. not going to talk about trauma per se. Right. But children with early abuse, neglect, malnutrition, poverty, removal from families, you know, that is a trauma. Exposed to natural disasters, you know, all these things. Parents Being adopted parents. itself, like at the point of leaving one set of caretakers and going right. into a family, is an extreme trauma right. for a child. And so knowing that that's in the background and being what we may see is um, without, let's say, even full-blown attachment disorder, we do see attachment issues. We see things that present as... Um, Forms of anxiety, and they can be where the child is hyperreactive in tantrums, where the child completely shuts down. We can see issues around toileting with incredible stool withholding or frequent accidents. We can see things around eating, hoarding, disrupted sleep. There's all sorts of cues. And I'm talking more on these young children who come where you can't have a discussion. You know, so in the early children who've just switched caregivers, um, you can see all sorts of kind of physical and behavioral manifestations of the stress from the what is, as their perception, mm-hmm. is a traumatic experience. And again, it, it rests with the child's perception, not ours. So that separation right. from known caregivers. 
But going back to the risk factors, what do you look for for risk factors for children who not won't have necessarily the temporary uh, uh, anxiety and stress associated with, but with adoption and with the change in caregivers and with the change of absolutely everything that exists in their life, which you can only imagine uh, how stressful that is for anyone, much less a young child. Um, Given that, but 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 for some of the longer term, more significant psychological uh, issues that can happen, what are some of the risk factors that parents can look for? Oh, risk factors are the signs. I mean, by definition, they all have the risk factors. <laughs> Just well, I think the number of caregivers, the, right. uh, the if older you have the, information, the yeah, older the well, older the age of placement, multiple placements. Um, if you're seeing history of, um, a, well, actually, neglect can be as harmful as abuse. So you can't say abuse is worse than neglect. Um, but multiple. The hard part is that we often don't know whether, in particular, both in domestic foster care as well as international, right. often don't know. But if, if there's certainly if there's a record of abuse. Right, be but, it sexual or physical, either one. Right, emotional. But again, older age of adoption, multiple caregivers, anything that suggests a lack of a stable and nurturing environment. That yeah. is, I mean, if the child is always worried about, you know, their prior experience was they were always worried about food. Yeah, that's you a know, big one. That can have a long, it, even in the absence of anything else, that can have long-term ramifications. So um, I think, you know, all these kids have something in their history where you kind of need to keep your antenna up. And then some kids, they ended up in a place that helped them build trust and confidence and stability, and they have a natural resilience, some kind of genetic predisposition. There's some kids that are very... Um, fragile in their makeup. And so even with the best of interventions, they don't recover completely. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, again, a mix of the history, the positive experiences, and then that whole underlying biology. And can you really turn back the clock mm-hmm. and undo? I mean, and this is where the whole argument is, is about a prevention model because it's cheaper and more effective to prevent these adverse experiences than to try to fix them after. Oh, you could probably get Martha and I talking on that one for a long time. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> the basic uh, issue of does international adoption have a place in, in, uh, uh, in, in, in international child welfare? Um, I wanted to read this question. It's a little long, but I, I think that I, I would like to hear you two discuss it. And it may be our last question, but I think it's important. She writes, how do we find a balance between following our desire to rescue a special needs child who is less likely to be adopted than a healthy child and feeling guilty because we are unwilling to consider the adoption of a serious special needs child? There is a tug of war between wanting our child to be as healthy as possible, paren, hoping that our child will have will have been spared severe emotional effects of institutionalization or will not have physical problems that will need, require high levels of care. So that's the tug of war between that and knowing that we do not choose we don't choose a high needs child who will uh oh gosh she's kind of who well she's going on and on but what about this child's fate yet we know that we don't want to overpromise and underdeliver taking on needs that we can't handle both personally and with the limited resources we may have um, 
the I, I thought that she was I, I was so appreciative that somebody because I think that is a very honest question that a lot of people have when they go on uh, uh, their agency's waiting child page or they go on rainbowkids.com their heart is tugged, and they say, gosh, we should be able to, uh, uh, and I'm putting air quotes around the word rescue because we don't choose to use that term, but uh, since our questioner did, I will. These these more severely involved children, yet the yet there is a reality in our life that we're not certain that we're the right family for that. So I'd like to hear both of you kind of talk about that tension. Um, Lisa, I'm going to start with you, and Martha, I'm going to give you the last word. Oh, dear. Um <laughs> Oh, dear. I think it goes back to the reality is um, my sense was is that the, this um, person was questioning a tr- having to make a choice between maybe a child who has more special needs than another. And it was yeah. that. Because, okay, so the reality yeah. is I would say is that both these children need a family, not one mm-hmm. more than the other. They both need a family but they both need to be in the right family, speaking to what Martha was discussing earlier. So if, you know, she may be saying, you know, this special needs child needs it more. No, they need it the same, but they need it different, and you may not be the family who can do that different. So I don't know if there's as much conflict if you think about the fact that all those children need homes, but as Martha said before, it needs to be the right family. Okay. Martha, would you like to uh, add anything to that? I... I agree with Lisa completely, and I'm glad that she made the point right away, is every child has the um, deserves a family the same amount as, as the next child. It's, it's all equal with kids. Um, and, Dawn, you had said something about the word rescue and save. We don't, we don't generally use that term in child welfare uh, because a f- families adopt because they want a child. Um, setting out to adopt to a rescue a child is a recipe for a disaster. Um, a child is not, no child is going to turn to you and say, thank you so much for adopting me. Because yeah. None of mine inside have. each human soul, there is um, the reality that we all need to be connected to someone. This is a basic need. And so fulfilling a basic need um, is is no reason for someone to turn and say thank you. And trying to make a child grateful to fulfill your need to be a rescuer is never a good idea. And I'm not saying that that is exactly what this person was putting forth. But this entire I don't process think it was. Is ex- no, and I don't. But I did want to just say it so that people understand that the process of entering into adoption um, is baby steps. And one of the steps that you take is to get over the idea that we are rescuers and understand that we're building our family in one way um, and that it comes with certain challenges. But to answer the question directly, I'm going to go off from, I'm not going to be Martha from Rainbow Kids, I'm going to be Martha who was adopted herself and has adopted five times. All of my children were diagnosed with medical special needs. A point that Don made earlier was is the truth. Um, Every medical special need is pretty much manageable. You you get into a rhythm and it's fine. It's the stuff your kids come home with um, that knocks you off your feet. You don't understand that nobody held them, Um, that uh, they're developmentally about four years old instead of the nine-year-old that you adopted, and that they need a lot lot of things that a four-year-old needs. 
and that that doesn't look pretty in public sometimes. Somebody, a nine-year-old throwing themselves down in the middle of the grocery store and freaking out because you won't buy one more can of beans um, is, is embarrassing. So there's a lot of things, a lot of issues our kids come home with uh, that you don't anticipate for, but being way down the road now and having kids in college and just a few more still at home, uh, it's very worth it, and it's a process, and it's just part of being a family. As Lisa kept saying, you, you don't know what you're going to get ever. And sometimes what you get is so much more wonderful than you could ever imagine that it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk of finding a child, maybe not more special needs or less special needs, but taking the time to look a little closer at an individual little human being who needs a family protecting the children and their needs that they have, that you already have in your family, protecting your marriage, and then looking at each child as an individual and saying, in the process of protecting all that you have already, would this child make a good fit? And knowing, as Lisa pointed out, it's never going to be a 100% answer. You're always going to come up to the line and take a leap of faith and step over and say, okay, we're going to move forward with the adoption of this child because we believe 98% this is a good choice to make. So. Thank you, Dr. Lisa Nelvin and Martha, 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 excuse me, Martha Osborne for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Martha, you, it was a perfect sum up. I couldn't do any better, so I won't even try. If you want to participate you. in the discussion on the topic of this show, check it out tomorrow on my blog at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information about Martha or about Rainbow Kids, you can go to her website, rainbowkids.com. To access the special needs section that I keep mentioning, uh, Martha, is it still uh, labeled under special needs on the left-hand side? Uh, yes, it is. And um, okay. it's just rainbowkids.com slash special needs also, so it's really oh, easy yeah, to well, find. I guess yeah, I hadn't even thought about doing that. <laughs> yeah. And Lisa, if people would like more information about you and your practice, where would they go to get that information? Um, they can go to valleyhealth.com forward slash adoption. Perfect. And I'd like to take a moment now to thank one more of our gold sponsors. It is through their generous support that we bring you this show, and uh, it's uh, and we couldn't do it without them. Independent Adoption Centers, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in 49 states and are fully licensed in California, Indiana, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, and New York. The U.N. estimates that there are millions of orphans in the world, including 104,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. These kids, as well as the millions of older kids throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about the U.S. children waiting for a family, you can go to the adoption resource page, of the waiting child page, I should say, of creatingafamily.org, where we include photo listings of some of these kids. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Thanks for having us, Don. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn, 
Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations.